As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Welcome to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. My name is Jessica Barron, and I am a vice president at Centennial Inc. Our podcast is to help leaders reframe success in leadership. We have had a tremendous response to the podcast. We had more than 10,000 people have been listeners so far. And today we have the fortune of interviewing a really strong leader, although he will tell you, I'm not going to call myself a leader. You can call me a leader, which I'm going to do. His name is Paul Sittenfeld. I've known Paul for a long time. Paul is a consultant now, and he has had a career both in financial management, community engagement, and we're going to let him talk a little bit about himself, which he generally is not as comfortable doing. So I'll poke him every time I want him to not miss something. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Jessica. Nice to be here with you. So we've known each other for a long time. We've known our families for a long time. Tell me what you're involved with right now and how you got to that point. Right now, I serve as a consultant to an investment advisory group, which I started within a larger firm, a firm headquartered out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, although I'm in the Cincinnati, Ohio part of it. And the two people I hired to work with me are now taking my place, and I continue to work with them as they wish to assist them and assist the clients with whom they work. Since I'm only working professionally part-time, I spend a lot of my time and energy with various kinds of volunteer activities to move along some of the issues that I think are important and selfishly to learn some things myself that I didn't know or to come to understand them better and appreciate the importance of how people participating can over a period of time make a difference and move the world along. And what kind of issues are you considering important? I mean, I'm sure you're considering a lot of issues important, but what kind of issues are you engaged with right now? I think what would characterize, because there's some disparate kinds of things I do, I've always been struck by a quote from the 1960s. West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer made the comment once, which has really stuck with me, that everyone's born under the same sky, but everyone doesn't have the same horizons. And I'm fascinated with the idea of exposure giving people a sense of what is there, what could be there, what you can work toward, train yourself for, if you know that it's there, and it can provide an incentive. And the more success, the more achievement you actualize, the more likely you are to be useful to other people in other kinds of ways. In recent years, indeed, I guess the last couple of decades, I've focused more and more on education. I don't think anything is a panacea, but I think giving people the opportunity to maximize the kind of education they want in a broad sense, not just simply academic education, but how to be useful, how to do the things that you want to do and do them as well as possible, and to give people the opportunity to know what's out there so that when they make choices, they're made with an awareness of what other choices they might make and what possibilities are there, and to do it in a timely way so that it effectively isn't too late. You don't want to think about college when you're in 11th grade You want to understand that college is available to you, that scholarships, you have financial limitations, 
can happen, but you need to prepare yourself. And so it's fun. It's very meaningful to be able to participate in the process of, of opening eyes, opening hearts, opening doors. What organizations specifically are you working with? Much of my time in recent years has been given to a place called Chatfield College. Chatfield College, which is over 150 years old in one form or another, was founded by a group of nuns in rural Ohio and has had different purposes through the years. This is the Ursuline Nuns of Brown County, which is a small, very small at the present time, order of women. And their current project, if you will, is a college with two campuses, one still in the same rural Ohio area, the other in inner city Cincinnati, both co-educational, one serving primarily, but it's open to anyone, the Appalachian community, which is a significant constituency in that part of Ohio and in this part of the country, and the other in downtown Cincinnati, which serves primarily African-American students. And again, although we have traditional aid students, the stereotypical 18 to 22 year olds, we have people who often are much, much older than that and often have made a series of, in retrospect, decisions they think they could have made better. Perhaps they didn't finish high school. That's often the case. Perhaps they got involved with a relationship that didn't work out more often than not abusive relationships. Perhaps they became involved as an early parent, earlier than they meant to, earlier than they wanted to, although it falls under the rubric of it seemed like a good idea at the time, people who encounter substance issues or incarceration, or alas, in many cases, several of the above. And without being religious, because I'm not necessarily all that religious a person, I've come to realize I believe very much in redemption, that the fact you've made some mistakes doesn't mean you can't learn from them and redefine yourself and have new opportunities. And so the kinds of students we have at Chatfield College often are carrying jobs, have children, there are more women than men, and they are trying to put together enough training to be useful citizens for themselves, for their families, and for the world at large. And what's exciting to me about it, very exciting, is when they succeed, and I wouldn't begin to tell you that they all succeed because many do not, it lifts the entire community around them. The parent, they, in many cases, 35-year-old grandmother who's watching the grandchild who didn't want that. The family grows together and the people around them. And so you're not just helping in a very modest way transform one life, but you're transforming all the lives that that person's life touches. And so that's occupied a lot of my time and energy. The volume isn't there, and we count success one by one, but for the one by one we can touch and help, it matters a lot. Now, I'm going to guess that our listeners are fascinated by the stories that you're telling and the examples that you're using. I know I am. What can an individual do to support an organization like that? What is your role? Well, there are so many roles. One of the things is modeling, role modeling. Often our students, and as I say, last year we graduated a 55-year-old woman and her 32-year-old daughter. And we can serve as role models, as mentors, as someone to say, I don't get it. I need some help. People, it's one of the, I think, unfortunate consequences of being unsure of yourself is not wanting to have to complicate it further by admitting it. But most of us, when we're honest with ourselves, which is a little easier than being honest with other people, 
are riddled with insecurity. And so if people can say, I need help with this course, I need help with transportation, I've made a bum decision, what can I do to try to be the intermediary? I don't begin to have all the answers, but I've, over a period of time, encountered enough questions that I can be a reference. I can coordinate a response and also feel free saying, I don't know, I'll find out. The other thing that's important when you're dealing with vulnerable people is to realize that they expect often to be let down. Other people have disappointed them, so I'll bet you're going to disappoint me also. And so if I say I'm going to be there, it's going to take a remarkable obstacle to prevent me from being there. And that's one of the things that can be frustrating. I've showed up for meetings with our students, confirmed them, and the person doesn't show up, doesn't say I'm sorry, and that projects my expectation. But I have access to a curb, and I had good manners, whatever that means, drilled into me at an early age. And so what would be pretty inappropriate for me to do doesn't make it appropriate if the other person does it, but to project my experiences onto the other guy, tempting though it is, is an exercise in futility and not very productive. So empathy is something I've learned a lot of. If I expect people to suffer my warts and blemishes, of which there are many, I jolly well better be prepared to absorb those and encounter theirs and deal with them in as kind a way as I can. Another organization that I noticed that you are active in is Purcell Marion. And how is that different from what you just described? Well, Purcell Marion is a school not far from where we lived for about 35 years. It was a Catholic boys' school in Cincinnati again that merged with a Catholic girls' school and a very fine school with a very fine history and heritage. And in recent years, it's a diocesan school. That is to say, it's subject to the rules of the Catholic Archdiocese of the Metropolitan Cincinnati area. It fell on hard times. Enrollment was down. Behavior issues surfaced. The place didn't look like a place you'd want to go, which I would have previously thought wasn't that important. You need to have good faculty. You need to have good courses. But what difference does it make what the hallways look like? And then I've come to realize that it matters a whole lot. If I really respect the people who are working there, and as much or even more the people who are going to school there, the fact that the school now looks, my room at home, our room at home should look as tidy as that school looks. And it shows a respect for the people who inhabit the building. It also shows a respect for the importance of the undertaking that's being pursued. The school is now 87% students of color. When I would guess two generations ago, it was, and this is nothing but a guess, perhaps no percent students of color. And we're giving young people the opportunity to be the best they can be, but not to tell them what they want to be. Again, to give them the sense of what opportunities are available so they can make choices and not to judge them. If you want to be a university professor, that's wonderful. If you want to be an electrician, that's wonderful. If you want to go in the armed services, either out of high school or as a career, that's wonderful. But make these decisions based on awareness of all the things that you could consider and treat these students as respectfully as you would want to be treated yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it, these things sound like corny aphorisms. That really isn't the point. But it is important to be respectful and to understand that things that I wouldn't do because it's not part of my cultural background and maybe things that I would even think are inappropriate are not necessarily inappropriate. What's wonderful about this country is what's so incredibly challenging about it. We're such a polyglot of backgrounds 
And what in one culture is normative in another culture is insulting. But what we have to do, despite the turbulence and unpleasantness of the world in which we're currently living, is to consider the intent, not just what you do. What did you intend? Did you mean to be insulting to me? So that when I make a real effort to show up for my meeting with you at 9 a.m. and the other person doesn't show up, your first inclination is to be madder than a stuck pig. And that was my inclination. Then to realize that has a different meaning in some cultures. Nine o'clock, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock. It's one of those o'clocks. And that's how I'm beginning to learn about the world in which I live and learn about it in a more constructive way than I did originally. That is very wise. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. You know, and I, the Conrad Adenauer quote is perfect because people say, oh, I understand what somebody else is going through. And the truth is, there's no way you can understand what somebody else is going through unless you've traveled that path with them. I asked you for a copy of your resume, and it was really enlightening. Throughout your resume, there are things like overseer, there are things like board member, regional director. But the most prevalent word on your resume for your not-for-profit or your professional expertise and experience is the word trustee. And there's literally two-plus pages of organizations that consider you a trustee. That, to me, in my horizon, says that that organization is depending on you to represent them in a responsible way. And this looks, frankly, sort of intimidating, and it's very diverse. It's anywhere from the Horticultural and Park Society to Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center to the Hebrew Union College to the Catholic schools. Tell me how you get to be a trustee. Well, trustee... In the kind of work I did professionally, there are, in a sense, two different kinds of things. As a trustee of an organization, typically a nonprofit, or, you know, again, you could use the word director or board member or whatever, is making a decision, analyzing situations in a way that's congruent with what the mission is. And that's why it's important, even though most mission statements tend to ultimately end up just gathering dust, to by consensus understand what the professional staff and the volunteers are committed to. What does success look like? What are we trying to achieve? One of the things on boards that I've had the privilege of chairing is to say to the head of the organization, the professional head, at the beginning of each year, in the presence of the full board, I want to be sure that we're all going for the same thing. So that at the end of the year, the head of the organization, the executive director, doesn't say, well, look what I've gotten done. I'm really pleased. And the board members think, well, that was the third priority. What about the first priority? So we all sign off on what are the more and less important things. If you're going to eat an elephant, you have to eat it one bite at a time. We can't get everything done. So let's have some agreement of what is important, what matters. And then it's our ethical obligation to be good stewards. And that's what you try to do, I think should try to do, as an engaged volunteer in a nonprofit organization. What I also do as a trustee which is quite different, and this is an extension of my professional responsibilities, is to serve as a trustee for families. And that has a very definite meaning, at least to me. If, as an example, someone says, well, if I should die and I'm leaving this amount of money, I want you to be in charge of the money, how to dispense it, when to dispense it, under what circumstance. And 
I agree to do it only if I think I understand the family, the individual well enough, because it isn't my role to decide what's correct, but to understand I operate in the absence of the person. So what would, if I were a trustee for Jessica or for Jessica's family in your case, I would try to do not what I might do with my children. I would understand what you would have done had you been here. I'm operating in your place. And if what you, as I learn about you, would do and want to do is something I don't think I can do very well or wouldn't feel comfortable doing, then I say, I'm really not the right person. And that doesn't speak ill of me. It doesn't speak ill of the person who's asked me to be a trustee. But I don't need to bring new thoughts to the table. And that's why I do extensive work with families in advance before agreeing to do it, because I want to be sure that I know what they would have done under what set of circumstances. Why not the family member? Why, you, well, why would you? There are many reasons not to choose a family member. Perhaps if, let's say for the sake of discussion, both parents are gone and then the sister has some unresolved issues. Does the brother want to be in charge of her money or be there as her confidant, as a source of comfort, rather than saying, no, you can't have the money. You don't really, you need a car. You want a very expensive, fancy sports car. How to say no? And what kind of relationship does adding money to the equation often have? Often people will want a family member to make healthcare decisions, but not financial decisions. And so what's complicating, but so inevitable, is that there's no right or wrong. Also, there's sometimes that a person ages out or somebody else comes along and you can't take it personally. We asked you to be a trustee a decade ago. You've gotten older. We've moved to North Carolina or North Dakota or New Mexico. We've met someone else who we think might be more compatible with the way our family member has grown or developed. So the idea used to be if you bought New York Central stock that you could forget about it. Well, you can't forget about anything anymore. We live in a complicated world and each of us in his own world lives in a very changing dynamic all the time. Makes it exciting, but makes it not easy always. Gives me a whole new vision of the word trustee. Thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things that you can't miss in knowing you, as well as seeing the accomplishments and the commitments that you've made on your bio, is that you have a great desire to make the world better and to pay that forward. I've known you and your family for years. I know your children since they were on tricycles. And I am struck by the fact that each of your four children has made a commitment, has watched you and Betsy, your wife, and the commitment that you've made to a better world, and in their own way have translated that into their life's work. I'm hoping that you can share a little bit of your children's work with us. I think it's really relevant. Well, sure. I'm happy to talk about the children. And I think what we've tried to do implicitly, not so much by what we say as by what we do, is to let the children know that we pursued lives professionally, as volunteers, as family members, that we wanted and that we want them to have the same opportunity. And if they make the choices and decisions that we wouldn't have made, that's fine. That there's something incredibly energizing in a very ongoing way about feeling passionate, feeling an energy, a commitment about what you're about. For a college reunion, I think five years ago, 
each of the classmates was invited to have a statement. And I said, blessedly for everybody who had to read it brief, that what most excites me is that our four children have embarked on lives that feel meaningful to them. I'm not sure I would have made the same decisions, but I'm absolutely sure it's none of my business. They're doing what they want to do. Our oldest, we have four children, three daughters, and the youngest is a son. Our oldest daughter is an environmentalist. She works in Washington, D.C., and she's a passionate advocate. She has been since she was literally in middle school for the environment. She feels it keenly. She's an outdoors person. She loves to go hiking and backpacking and rock climbing and all the rest of it. And the very notion that we're fouling our nest is very un unappealing to her, very worrisome to her. And so she feels a passion. She's the National Legislative Director for the League of Conservation Voters, which has as its agenda working to elect men and women, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, who feel the same concern she feels and the League feels about the future of our environment, the, the whole question of climate change, getting people who sense the urgency of this elected, and then persuading them to be aggressive in pursuing a response to those challenges. I have an anecdote about Tiernan that I have to share. When Tiernan was in high school, she was an intern. She was a summer intern in my husband's business. And it was a distribution, a warehouse distribution business at the time. And she walked into the office and decided they needed a recycling program. And she put it into effect. And Bob has never forgotten that, that she took the initiative as a very young person to help instruct everyone that worked in his office. So thanks, Well, without Tina. competing with you on that, when I went to work in an investment firm and I was a new employee, she came down to visit me. She was in sixth grade. And she went in the lunchroom and, unbeknownst to me, went to see the head of the company, who she had met but certainly didn't know. And as I say, she was, I guess, 12. And she said to him, what is your recycling program? And he said, huh? And she said, what do you do with all the soda pop cans? And he said, I don't know, they go away. And she said, well, if you would get someone to put them in a large plastic bag twice a week and put them in my father's office, he will take them home. So for the next six years until blessedly she left and went to college, when everybody else's father went home and mother with a nice-looking briefcase, I went home looking at the scales of justice with two humongous bags of tin cans. Absolutely a true story. And at first I was a little embarrassed and a little irritated. And then I thought, golly, if this means that much to her, quit squawking. You could have children who did much worse. And there were times when they did some things that were a good deal worse. Daughter number two started writing. We knew that she was a little peculiar to begin with when she asked me, when she was three, who invented towels and why? And I thought this is kind of an aberrant mind to begin with. In any event, she started writing. And then she wrote in her middle school years, a sort of advice to the lovelorn. What do you do when you are spending the night at a friend's house and you have to go to the bathroom and instead of just peeing, you have to poo? Then what do you do? Do you flush it and worry about awakening people? Or do you have the dread possibility that the family might awaken the next day to find undesirable things floating about the toilet. And when she didn't have questions that were asked her for her column, she ran up the questions as well as the answers. So she went on to become more and more successful in her writing when she was a freshman in high school. She won the Seventeen Magazine Fiction Contest and subsequently has written a number of very successful novels. And blessedly, I think, I'm just tickled, she's become a real political activist and is an ardent feminist. And well, the whole family is 
hopelessly left wing, but I have to confess I say that with great pride, but that's neither here nor there. If you're lucky enough to be as lucky as we've been, it's nice to pass that along a little bit. Daughter number three is a professional photographer and she lives in Rhode Island and she also does video. She spent the last 10 years working with a young fellow, then eight, now 18 on the autism spectrum. And she's done a major video about how he's developed with what challenges, with what opportunities, and has become very close to the family. And she figured out a system where she could barter. She could film all this with the support of the parents if she would be a babysitter and so forth. And she feels a passion about this. She also worked with it when she taught in New Mexico. She worked with a young woman who was totally deaf, I guess, as I think, born deaf. And Josephine learned to sign so that she could connect with this young woman, who then subsequently went on to Stanford University, ended up as a Rhodes Scholar, had a cochlear implant, which solved the hearing problems at the age of 20, but not all the consequent emotional problems, hearing for the first time when you're 20 years old. And then our fourth child, our only son, was interested in public service. After college, he won a Marshall Scholarship for a couple of years at Oxford and was working at Google, where apparently they had a pretty cushy situation where you had massages every day and pate this and shrimp that for lunch and so forth. But he decided that maybe he wanted to do something that felt a little more in sync with what he cared about. And he came back to work in the public school system in Cincinnati as the system has expanded to include on-site services, especially in disadvantaged areas, so that rather than missing a day, there's a nurse on site, there's a vision clinic, there's a dental clinic, there's referrals for all kinds of things, so people can be helped in that way. But it's not what they're doing, it's that they're doing things that feel important to them. What a remarkable blessing. And I think the children saw, my wife has been a teacher and librarian for 37 years, now retired, and we've both done things that felt important to us. We could have done other things, we could have done what we did better, but we found it rewarding and days are awfully long when you are doing something that doesn't feel very rewarding or meaningful to you. And I am very grateful that our children are doing things that did and do and hopefully will continue to enthuse them. Thank you for sharing all that. In fact, I was about to mention Betsy because Betsy has been a very strong impression and leader in terms of being a role model for not just your children, but for others as well. So Well, and what she's also done, because she, I am, to say the least, not shy. She is very private. And so rather than doing the kind of things I've referenced that I've had the opportunity to do, she picks up all of my messes. I'm very bad at saying no, but then I say yes to things I can't quite deliver on. And she somehow cleans it up. I agreed to cater a party at an auction within the last several weeks. And then I thought, oh my goodness, that's gonna happen now. So she picked up the whole thing and it appeared that I'd done everything. I had done essentially nothing. So she's covered for me for 48 years. We would both look for other spouses, but nobody wants either of us at this point. So we're gonna probably tough it out together. I can identify with that in my situation as well. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I am always so proud and engaged with the Sittenfeld family. and. I just wanted other people to understand the breadth and the depth of the interest that your family has shared. One thing we haven't talked about, which I know is near and dear to your heart, is the ensemble theater. 
in Cincinnati, and how does that fit with all the educational stuff that you're involved with? Well, the Ensemble Theater is a special place for several reasons. The Ensemble Theater is and has been for 30 years in an area of Cincinnati called Over the Rhine, which was a very down-and-out neighborhood. It was a wonderful neighborhood. It has some of the most handsome architecture, really comparable in many ways to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., but it was dangerous, and when the theater opened, it was started by two women who were real visionaries and themselves very much into theater. And one of them was a good friend and asked me to get involved with it. My enthusiasm for theater is being an audience member. I love theater. I have no talent whatsoever on the stage, certainly. But in any event, the theater in what was a dangerous area, sufficiently dangerous that we had a policeman who would escort you from your car to the theater so that you weren't mugged, so that you weren't offered drugs or asked for money to buy drugs or whatever, it's become a wonderful, vibrant part of metropolitan Cincinnati. And the theater led the way. So what has always appealed to me about ensemble theater is it does quality theater, but every play chosen by the director, a woman named Lynn Myers, who is exceptional, has a message. It has a social message that it conveys, not in a bombastic, not in a didactic, ponderous way, but something you're supposed to take away about the complicated world in which we live, whether it's about racism, whether it's about gender equity, whether it's whatever. So many issues, economic disadvantages, and the plays are really important. What makes it even more wonderful is the educational outreach. Not only do we bring students in, but we also take, for, for instance, for people on the autism spectrum who would be uncomfortable in a theater, we take a production to them. And we try to be a complete community resource. And we are building, which was in bad shape, needed some help. And it turned out that we needed to raise a lot of money. And I understand the reason for it, but I'm not as sympathetic as I should be to the stereotypical way to raise a lot of money, which is you have a feasibility study and then you have 12 color brochures, then you hire a consultant and on and on it goes. So I said I would chair the campaign, especially if I could dragoon a good friend into helping me, a woman I admire hugely, who had been recently widowed, as long as we didn't have a feasibility study, didn't announce the campaign, and we would buy stamps. I bought 10 49-cent stamps at the time. They're now 55 cents, which is quite regrettable. But in any event, that was my gesture. And we just went to obvious sources, obvious possible sources, and raised the seven million dollars that we needed and it was never with discussed stamps, never announced with 10 stamps 10 stamps and a lot of vocal cords <laughs> but no feasibility study <laughs> nothing no, no no brochures no announcement of any campaign chairman or committees just doing it and we had a story to tell that you're investing in the future of this community and again opening horizons it's very moving to realize that lots of people we tend to be in our own bubbles no matter who we are and what we're doing Oh, doesn't everybody get to go to theater? No, lots and lots of people don't get to go to theater. And that's a pretty wonderful, is it more important than hunger? No, but are they mutually exclusive? Hopefully not, affordable housing. I'm not indifferent to or unaware of the challenges in our community right here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Affordable housing is a terrible issue. Poverty is at an absolutely unacceptable rate. Drug addiction and drug overdoses and death are rampant. We've lost an average of one person a day in this county. But we need things of beauty, 
things of hope, things to which to aspire. And so I've chosen to believe, and of course we can talk ourselves. I read Ben Franklin's autobiography as an eighth grader, and it never left me. That you can rationalize almost anything you want to believe. And so I've talked myself into the fact that a theatrical experience isn't irrelevant, that I don't want that in place of you having a full belly at the end of the day, because it is horrifying when I realize when we finish a perfectly nice dinner, or better than perfectly nice dinner, that people within walking distance of where we lived for 35 years are hungry. That's awful, but I can't make everything happen. All I can do is some short strokes that make something happen. Paul, you have done exactly what I asked you to do. Thank you. People remember stories. People remember the context of what you're doing. And I'll repeat that this podcast is to help leaders reframe leadership. And I ask those of you that are listening to this, have we done our job today? Have we asked you and shared with you the context of what it means to be a leader, what it means to pick what you just choose to be a leader in, and to make a difference. And I would maintain that Paul Sittenfeld is the kind of leader that I absolutely emulate, and his entire family is an inspiration to me. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and I look forward to hearing the stories of the next generation as well as they make their mark. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Paul. This is Jessica Barron for the Talent Magnet Institute. Thank you for listening to us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity.